What's up? Welcome to Sweathead with Mark Pollard. I have Tom Donald all the way from Sydney, who's a head of strategy currently at a, a design studio called Re. And Tom has been in planning and in, in strategy since the late 90s. He's worked in the UK, in the USA, and in Australia. We're going to talk about brand strategy today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much, mate. 20 years in strategy. How has strategy changed for a practicing strategist? Oh, wow. Huge question. Look, in a weird way, in the 21, maybe even 22 years since I've sort of been in and around advertising design and doing strategy across those disciplines, in a weird way, it's kind of come full circle in that, you know, when I first got into what at that point was called planning in in an advertising context, a lot of the building blocks and the tools that we used and what you were trying to develop was kind of simple, cut down to the point And then strategy, and look, I know a lot of us on Twitter go on about this and it seems to have turned, but it went through just an incredible, incredibly complicated phase, an era of of complexity for its own sake, if you like. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is it feels like in the last four years, we've kind of gone full circle back to where it was in, in the late 90s in the sense that the goal of the strategist is to simplify, make intelligible, develop briefs and ideas and plans that are easily followed, competitively uh, meaningful, that are going to help the client grow, and that are actually helping people work together and align rather than just confusing everybody with complexity and jargon. So I Mm -hmm. guess that's the main thing I've observed is this incredible era of complexity that was kind of a horrendous thing to have lived through in its own way. Um, and it's kind of died under, died its, under its own death. And we're kind of back to basics in a weird way. It's almost like, you know, if you play an instrument, I know you've done martial arts. It's like there are a handful of moves, a handful of chords that just work time after time after time. And you can go through these eras of, of, of insanity, but it, eventually everyone returns to what works. And that is what feels like has happened uh, with, with strategy in a marketing context. What do you think kicked off the complication? Well, I was definitely the net. I, look, I'm stealing from Bob Hoffman who says it so well. He says he's got some quote around the thing of you, there's no greater sucker than a, than a client or a marketing director thinking that they're missing a trick. And when the net came along, because, I mean, my first advertising job was just as the internet was getting going and I actually shipped some of the first, I was originally an art director who also had a role in traffic and I shipped some of the very, very first digital banners that were ever produced. I mean, not the first, but they would have been within the first two or 300 digital banners. I, I think what happened is when digital came along, it was a new world, right? There was a lot that clients didn't understand. Um, there was a lot that agencies didn't understand. And I think a lot of people People used that for their own monetary gain for a period of time. It's like, look, guys, you don't understand this. We understand it. Pay us a whole bunch of money to do it for you. And then the way you keep the checks rolling in is to keep adding unnecessary complexity to baffle the client so that they keep paying. I think just what has happened is over 20 years of education and people lifting up the hood, if you like, and having a look what, what's really going on under there. Um, people have gone like, that. this isn't nearly as complicated as you've made it seem. And we're seeing sort of the fallout from that. So it, it doesn't just happen in our industry. I don't think you need to point fingers at this industry and say, ah, oh, that was particularly unscrupulous. Jargon and complexity get used across pharmaceuticals, across all sorts of other industries, sports, stats, blah, you know. But I just think it was... Um, you know, bafflement for the sake of making a buck. Have you ever been in or seen a conversation that is 
explicitly about making something more complicated to get a sale. Because I've been, I've been around tens and tens of clients and projects and I've, I've never seen that as a conversation. Is it, is it something that you think people have explicitly focused on or it just kind of emerges through the culture and seems to succeed so people copy it? Look, on the client side, I've never been part of those conversations, but I have actually received feedback multiple times in my career that I have made things too simple and that the client won't feel that they've gotten value for money if the answer is just that simple. Uh, So I have actually had agency heads and, and people direct me to make it more complicated. I've never done that. What I tend to do is to beef up the front end of the presentation to sort of take them on a bigger journey, if you like. And I do understand the clients need to see what they've paid for. Uh, the smarter clients I've always worked with, they don't give a shit about the whole upfront, you know, the, the, the 30 slides that set up the answer. As long as the answer is nice and simple and executable, that's all they care about. But yeah, on the agency side, I have been told, I have had many times feedback that the, Tom, the answer just can't be this simple. You're like, well, it really can be. But a lot of agencies are worried that they don't look smart. You know what I mean? That they don't look as, particularly in the era of the threat of the big four consultancies, it's like, you know, when faced with the, 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 the sea of, of jargon coming out of you know, Accenture and McKinsey and, and those organisations, when advertising agencies sort of just go in and say, look, the answer is the number three, to, to pick a ludicrous answer on purpose, they're worried that they're going to look intellectually naive or that they don't have the intellectual firepower that if they were dressing everything up in big fancy words. So I just think that's where it comes from. It comes from an insecurity um, within the industry and I think an insecurity of a lot of leaders who have sort of just ended up in those roles. So, yeah, unfortunately, I have actually been asked to make things more complicated many, many times. I always don't, but I have been asked. And yeah, that's an interesting spectrum from extremely complicated on one end to looking naive on the other and trying to find the sweet spot. Mm. For someone who's kind of new to the industry, who's hearing people like us talk about the need for simplicity and focus and for removing words and parts of the story that don't really help and just distract, how do you navigate a culture that demands complexity and verbosity? That's a really great question. First of all, you have to be self-confident. I look back at uh, bits of work that I was not happy with and they were at moments in my life, either as a younger person or I had things going on in my personal life where I just wasn't feeling super self-confident, where I would allow myself to get pushed into making, into not sticking to my guns. I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're faced with a culture that's saying, make this complex, make this jargon filled, baffle, 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 unless you have a confidence in who you are and what you're doing, you're just going to give in. Um, Mm -hmm. So I know know it's a bit of a hippie answer in one way, but you've just got to have the confidence that you know what you're doing, which is really hard actually as a junior planner uh, or a junior strategist. I've got to be honest, I look back at my first 10 years in the game and I'm kind of mortified a little bit. Like I was so arrogant in some ways and actually most of the time had no clue what I was doing. Did did some decent work by hook or by crook and by having some good bosses and some good mentors. But, oh God, I'm rambling, aren't I, Mark? I apologise, mate. But (laughs) you need to spend enough time to get some confidence to really stick to your guns. So I would say that. I'd also say just come back to the masters of strategy. All our terms in strategy come from the military, right? And I find some of the greatest writers about strategy are military strategists. 
Um, and all of them from, you know, Sun Tzu through to a new guy at the moment who I'm really heavily influenced by called Jocko Willink, they'll all talk about the critical need for simplicity. And when you can roll out these sorts of people and push that up to your bosses and be like, the reason we need to keep things simple is for these reasons, it can help with your sell. So just confidence mm -hmm. and leverage other strategists who will talk about the need for simplicity, including Rumelt, good strategy, bad strategy. I mean, he's got a whole chapter on, on, on why things have to be simple. So just leverage those thinkers. Yeah, I think I was lucky enough to have a couple of years, like Leo Burnett, Sydney, especially with uh, Todd Sampson and Scotty Davis, where it was, it was all about just get the thinking on a piece of paper and mm. to see the head of planning whose next job was CEO to do that with no logo on the piece of paper either. And also to mm. present, you know, I remember presenting to the Heineken team when they were launching Amstel in Australia and, we just put it on a like one piece of paper and we put that plain piece of paper on a board and it, it worked. They loved it. And so to be in that environment, I think, is where other people encourage and succeed through simplicity, I think, was important. And also I've seen a lot of the best work come from a conversation mm. that someone went and wrote up, got people on board, and then all of a sudden that's winning. Uh, all, all these awards and being quite effective. But other, otherwise, I think it's very easy to get carried away in the over-intellectualization over of everything. Well, you've got, to you've got to prove your existence. Look, I think it's interesting what you just said because like Todd Sampson, you know, he's an extraordinarily confident, I don't know him, but he's an extraordinarily confident man. And I, I'm just coming back to confidence. What I mean is it takes a confident leader and a confident CEO to walk into a client, right, with a hand-drawn piece of paper with no logo on it and then begin to talk through a solution. When you've got a CEO or leaders with less confidence, that's when they're like, we have to dress it up. We have to keynote the hell out of it. We've got to do all this sort of stuff. So, you know, it's a fantastic experience you had. And again, so informed by the confidence of the people that you worked with. Yeah, and and that particular era, it even carried through to getting internal feedback. And the internal feedback would be often a one-question survey. What's one thing we can do better here? To have had two or three years of seeing other people hungry for simplicity, succeeding through simplicity was really refreshing because at the same time in an advertising agency, we would often inherit strategy from let's call them branding agencies, you know, semiotics, a hundred slides of mm. all this stuff and mm. con confusing as anything costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we would get it and go, well, I don't know what to do with this. Mm -hmm. And now you've worked in and with <laughs> that, that kind of strategy as well. Has your appreciation of brand strategy changed over the years? Yeah, it really has. I have spent across 20 years uh, and I've done a couple of clints, stints, clints, a couple of stints client side. Um, I've spent as actually as much time with design firms and brand consultancies as I have as I have in ad agencies. So I've had sort of the luxury of sort of work, walking both sides of the line between doing comms and then doing more design and then even doing pure brand. Um, I do have a, an appreciation for brand strategy that I think a lot of people in advertising don't. I also think, and I certainly suffered this as a, as a younger planner because I came out of ad agencies, is I think a lot of people in ad agencies think that they get brand and that they can do brand strategy just because they know how to do advertising planning. And they're actually two quite different skill sets. I certainly had that arrogance as a younger as a younger strategist and have, have lost that. And I do think you've really got to be careful as, as an advertising strategist. You can appear terribly naive. I've been with clients in situations where the, an ad agency has presented a campaign and then sort of gone on the back of this campaign, here's your new brand strategy. 
And all it does is reveal that you actually don't have a clear understanding of the entire scope of what a brand strategy is and how, what it does and the true North Star that it is for an organization. And that to actually go and say just on the back of one advertising campaign that your whole brand strategy needs to change is almost laughably naive. But again, I have to laugh at myself because I have done that in my past. Same. Um, yeah. Where are the blind spots? The blind spots from an advertising perspective is just not understanding really that the biggest utility for most corporations and decent sized companies of a brand is internal. People from a comms perspective always think that brand is, they kind of know it's not, but on a, on a gut level, brand is all about external expression, right? What do my stores look like? What do my ads look like? And yes, that's really valuable to clients, but really the bigger they get and the more competitive the market they're in, the internal job for the brand, getting people motivated to come to work, what is the employee experience like, what is the employee value proposition, all these things that you, know, you really only start to work with when you start to work with clients on their internal brand, that's the real guts of the strategy. Um, and brand purpose, I'm actually a huge fan of brand purpose. I think it has absolutely no role to play in communications. It, it shouldn't inform external expression. Almost never should it inform external expression. But internally, it's really critical. And so I just think it's that understanding of how big and complex a good, well, not complex, I take that back, but how much more a cogent brand strategy is for a company than just what guides external expression. I've written really similar words. I mean, brand, brand purpose to me, while many people debate it when they're actually talking about CSR or some hashtag social media campaign, I mean, brand purpose is about why people turn up to work mm, and, mm. and making sure that you get the best people who can develop the best products that maybe you don't have to advertise as much because they're so good. And, uh, you know, so to me, brand purpose answers a question of, of meaning that is not just about doing something nice for the world. And mm. I think the themes that you mentioned there, I, I think they've come into sharper focus in the past five to 10 years with the publishing of a lot more behavioral economic science and also the merging of personal and professional social lives on the internet. Is that fair? What do you mean by the? I think so. What do you mean by the last part? That, say, through LinkedIn, for example, that people a lot of people want to have good stories to tell about their work because that can give them status and it can also attract similar people into their lives. And so yeah. 10 years ago, that wasn't a thing. True. Look, I definitely look the, the, the first thing you said about the emergence and publishing of a lot of data from, from both a behavioral economics perspective and, but just even like the Byron Sharps of the world and, and the Ritzons and that whole thing. I do think that's, in terms of the return to simplicity, and I'm kind of returning to a theme we were talking about earlier here, I gave a talk recently where I talked about how, how Nirvana effectively killed rock and roll. And I, I won't go down a whole rant about that, but you had this incredible complexity in, in rock and roll music before Nirvana came along. It was sort of hair metal and finger tapping and all this sort of, it, it had gone into this bizarre, like nerdy engineering phase, a little bit like what strategy did. And I actually argue that like Byron Sharp, Bob Hoffman and Mark Ritson, but particularly Bob Hoffman and Byron Sharp, they're like our Kurt Cobain, right? They're the Nirvana moment where all that unnecessary complexity, it can't survive anymore. And so I do think the emergence of real numbers, and we can debate them and, and look at them and that's meaningful, but so much of strategy in marketing, branding and advertising, it, there was no real numbers behind any of it. So you couldn't have a evidence-based 
conversation or debate about what was effective and what wasn't. How does branding work? How does comms work? So I also think that a lot of what we're seeing unfold in the last five years is really the impact of data coming. And was that potentially also helped by the simplification of the the main social media platforms and their algorithms? Because before five years ago, the social media platforms were definitely more Wild West and then they turned to pay for play. Yeah, no, I think I think so. I, I completely agree with that. And the ability both through Twitter, I mean, I, I can't stand LinkedIn for a variety of reasons. It's, it's, it's an aesthetic thing. I don't like the way it looks. It's as banal as that. But um, between Twitter and link, LinkedIn, um, the ability to actually share and find this information is is unparalleled. So yeah, I, I agree. I think I think that the speed at which you know the Hoffmans and and the Sharps and the Ritzons have spread through the marketing community via those platforms has been unprecedented. But let me ask you some one on one questions. To you, what is brand strategy? One of the big realizations I've had in the last sort of ten years, and it's going to sound so mind numbingly obvious, but it often isn't thought about, is Business strategy comes first. Brand strategy is a supporting strategy for how are you going to use internal and external levers, internal and external expression from your HR policies internally and your purpose and CSR and all that stuff through to your store design, through to advertising, through to products, exterior. How are you going to use those assets to deliver on your business strategy? So, To try and simplify that, the brand strategy is how are you going to use the resources internally and externally to deliver on your your business strategy? And then advertising strategy? Well, yeah, advertising or comm strategy is, again, a subset, if you like, of brand strategy. It's looking at, okay, so we can see that the parts of the brand strategy that drive external expression, which for me are the, the three most important things are positioning, proposition, Uh, and then personality, right? We can see what those are and we can lift those off the brand strategy and apply those to the marketing task at hand, whether that's drive awareness of this or sell X number of that, you know, but it's how we're going to use the parts of the brand strategy that drive expression to do communications. I'm sure you've had this experience. You've had clients who say, you know, I need this advertising campaign to align with our purpose and our values. And you, I mean, poor advertising creatives trying to write ads that are actually going to sell stuff that align to these bizarre corporate values. Whereas when you clearly delineate, no, 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 values are just internal. They don't, they don't, they don't guide design. They don't guide advertising. Leave that alone. It makes the job for advertising agencies a lot easier and for design firms too. So you mentioned positioning, proposition and personality. Do you have mm. a particular structure for positioning statements that you like to use? I do. I think visually, right? Years ago, I wrote a creative brief for a guy who'd been trained by Dave Trott, who's another person I should mention. I just adore Dave Trott. And he threw the brief back at me. And I'm going to labor the point here a little bit. He threw the brief back and it wasn't about positioning. He said, that's not a fucking prop. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, prop is always a simple answer to the question, you know, why should I buy this one or why should I vote for this one? And coming out of that, to stop myself writing bullshit positionings and bullshit propositions, I actually developed a couple of visual little cartoons, which I call prop bubbles and positioning bubbles. I can share that with you and and your listeners too. Um, And so for me, a positioning is what's the word or the very short phrase that if we are disciplined with our marketing over time, we will come to own in the minds of the market. So the classic ones are things like Coke, 
refreshing. FedEx, overnight. You know, those are the, the, the ones of brands that have really stuck to their guns. Um, Aldi is all about, you know, everyday low prices or whatever you want to, however you want to capture that. So for me, it's, I don't like the 4X, you know, brand Y is the X that does this. You know, I don't like that approach. I like to know from a competitive perspective, if we could own a very focused thought in the mind of the market that's going to help us win and deliver on our business strategy, what's that thought? And that just gets written in a bubble, literally a thought bubble. And and so that's what I use. And then for propositions, I use the same. And I actually force clients sometimes with fat markers to fill these things out, which means they can't write little mini essays and they just have to focus on the simplicity of the, the one word or the three words. And they hate doing it sometimes, but you always end up in a much, much more focused spot. For a long time, I've used Sharpies and Poskas and all kinds of pens. Uh, but at the same time, when I studied for school and college, I would make really small notes on pieces of paper and basically try to get an entire semester of content onto <laughs> a single page. And and to some degree, maybe the early years of my strategy world was a little bit like that, a little bit busy. And then I managed to work out how to merge the two. And I, I read Rework, which was a book by the guys from 37 Signals. And they, they talked about just get a piece of paper and a Sharpie. And that means that you can't get away with loose thinking because mm. you only have limited space and a large pen. And so it's a, it's a great technique. Uh, just for, for people who are new to things like positioning statements, the, what are some of the conventional approaches that you're... Uh, not that you're not a fan of, but what are the conventional approaches you started to, you ran through an example pretty quickly. Look, I haven't used it in years. Um, so I can't remember all the fields, but it's like it goes for audience and you have to fill in the audience brand. And then you write your client's name in there or the product is the, and then there's a blank. It goes something like for this audience, our brand is the blank that does blank because blank. Um, and you, you, it's sort of this templated approach. And Rumelt in Good Strategy, Bad Strategy has a whole thing about how templated strategy is the driver of most bad strategy. So I have an aversion to it from its templated nature a- anyway. So that's the one that um, I was most tortured by working on American FMCG clients because a lot of those sorts of clients really love this templated approach to doing marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons I don't like it is, again, if you would – if you if you take uh, the idea that strategy is the art of sacrifice, right? That wonderful thing that Dave Trott writes about, if you haven't made a sacrifice, you don't have a strategy. Um, I find some of the templated approaches to positioning, there's just too many words, right? There's too much stuff in there. So at the end of the day, what, what is our brand going to stand for? It's going to stand for digital magic. You can't get to, or, you know, Disney happy, right? You can't get to that incredible simple focus when the template's too complicated mm-hmm. and so the bubble that you like to use you don't see that as a template it, look it actually is a template um it, uh, and i don't always use it like if there's clients who really are averse to it i don't want it but uh, the reason i have always i try to always use it is god stealing a little bit from the, the Saatchi brothers it, it it forces people to be brutally simple you know at, uh, and there, there is a huge power and we know from a comms perspective but also from a military strategy perspective that simple strategy is it works when everybody you know we used to I worked on canadian club down here which has been very successful and um 
you know, I remember the, the CEO of Beam at the time, a guy called Phil Baldock, who's just a wonderful bloke and a mentor and a friend. You know, the whole thing was to develop a strategy that everybody from the guy delivering this Canadian club to a, to a bottle shop, through to a bartender, through to senior person at Woolworths, everyone had to be able to understand the strategy and you were only going to be able to get there through simplicity. So I, I do stick with my template uh, where possible just because it forces such horrible simplicity. So positioning, proposition, personality, what are your techniques for exploring and then defining personality and how do you do that? Okay, I've got a planner working with me at the moment called uh, Remy Cazellas, who's a wonderful Frenchman. And Remy um, said something the other day, which I just think nails it, which he says, personality is the unsung hero of great brands. And what he means by that is most of the clients we work on are in commoditized or commodified categories. When you actually look at it, there's no real difference between them. There's no real difference between Apple and Samsung. There's no real difference between Louis Vuitton and Gucci. And, and, and particularly brands that command huge price premiums, the luxury brands, they kind of really get the role of personality. And if what we're trying to do through marketing and brand strategy is to, to help people deliver a price premium, because that's really at the end of the day what a brand does, I can charge more for my product than you, this intangible value created through brand, right? So the luxury brands get that. And they get that actually personality is almost more important than positioning and is almost more important than your proposition, certainly more important than purpose. So what I'm trying to get at is, personality is so, so important. And it's often the most overlooked thing on a brand strategy. And often on briefs, people just make up three adjectives at the end. Oh, the personality, friendly, approachable. And, and it's like, no, 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 no. You set the personality for the brand once, right? Once every five years, once every maybe 10 years, and you sweat it to death, right? Because that's going to be the driver, the real distinctive driver of your expression. So that's why we... Uh, particularly uh, we're at a design firm who do a lot of work, brand work. We don't do advertising, but we do a lot of brand work with big corporates. So that's why we really, really sweat it here. And look, we don't talk about this much because it's become a bit daggy, but I'm a huge fan of brand archetypes. They're such a fantastic shortcut for getting to a distinctive personality. Um, often don't tell clients that we're working with brand archetypes because there was a lot of very poor use of archetypes and unscrupulous, all sorts of terrible stuff happened in the, in the noughties with brand archetypes and a lot of clients have been burnt. But I am personally of the opinion that the sort of work done by Jung and various other people that underpins them is robust and sufficient enough to have boiled down huge archetypes and narratives into these tool into these types that you can use and leverage for figuring out your personality. We don't stick slavishly to them. They're a jump off point, but we start with brand archetypes because you can be working on a client. You can quickly go, well, it's not outlaw and it's not hero and it's definitely not every man. So then you can get to a subset of archetypal characters that it might be and then craft your own in a way that's going to be really distinctive and competitively differentiating within the client's category. Um, but then we just don't call it like caregiver or sage. We come up with other names. And then we always try to flesh it out as much as possible because what we're finding is the more you flesh out a brand personality so that people working in, in, at the company can imagine who it is, how it would talk, how it would walk, that helps police expression a lot better than just three adjectives or, or a personality that's constantly changing and isn't locked down. Psychologically, why do you think personality is so important? Well, it's a great question. Um, I, I think it's because on an animal level, um, we 
we kind of, on an individual level, when we're meeting people, all the little cues they give about who they are, what they're like, what they do and don't like, how they're going to behave, how they're going to respond. These are things that we're all picking up on a micro level that help us evaluate whether this person is one of us, not one of us. Do I want to hang out with them? Do I not want to hang out with them, etc. And I think also for really strong brands, it's the same thing, particularly the ones that are trying to command a price premium, right? Is this brand for me? Do I like what it's like? Does it feel part of my world? Does it not feel part of my world? And the strong brands where they're consistent in personality, again, what we look for in people and brands over time is a consistency. Are you who you were yesterday? Because if you aren't, then were you lying to me yesterday, right? Were you showing me some face that's not authentic? So when you can have a personality that's at least navigatable for the consumers and feels some degree of consistency, it builds, oh, look, these are cheesy words, mate, but it helps build that trust, that affinity, all that sort of stuff that then a, a, a price premium is something you'd be happy to pay. And then as far as archetypes, for people who don't know what they are, what are they and how do you use them? Archetypes are effectively come from Jungian psychoanalysis where Jung went through, uh, and it was also picked up by Joseph Campbell in all that stuff that then informed Star Wars, but Jung basically went through sort of, if you like, a cultural analysis of the main stories and characters that exist in global myths and legends and extrapolated both from that and his own, own psychoanalytical work, what are the major sort of archetypal characters that you can see across stories and myths? So then these other academics in the 90s then picked that up and applied it to marketing and to brands and sort of came out with 12 archetypes based on Jungian archetypes that brands can, can use as inspiration for figuring out their, their personality. So that's sort of the history of it. It comes from a psychoanalytical and also, if you like, an anthropological background, looking at myths and legends and characters. And again, how we use it is we just use it as a jumping off point. You can go through the archetypes quickly eliminate which ones your client definitely isn't, interrogate the ones that it might be, and then workshop with them what sort of an amalgamation. They might want to just choose one and say, yep, that's it. You know, we're hero. Or, for example, Harley-Davidson, classic outlaw brand. They are an outlaw brand. That's what they are. Uh, you know, some Australian brands are classic everyman brands. It's an it's archetype that works well in a culture like Australia. Um, mm. So we just use them as a jumping off point for helping to figure out what's the personality that we're going to craft for the brand. Yeah, I remember when I first came across them, probably late, mid to late 20s, and saw them being used in an interesting way where part of the consumer research actually involved card sorting of the archetypes when people would be asked, you know, what's this, what's bank A to you as an archetype? Uh, I don't know if the researcher would have used the word archetype, but they would have had mm. a series of cards in front of them and then they would card sort based on what they saw. And I thought it was interesting, but to your point, leaping off point, as opposed to, you know, dogmatic lock and key, this is exactly what we are. Oh, absolutely. And look, I, I was saw a terrible piece of work, which is where brand archetypes got trashed. I saw an analysis done by some incredibly unscrupulous firm, which was telling a major Australian insurance holding company that if they moved one of their brands from, I'm making this up now, I can't remember, but from hero archetype to sage archetype, that they would see an X million dollar uplift in business. I mean, it was just the most methodologically ropey, unscrupulous piece of dog shit you've ever seen and but the trouble was the client believed it right so i guess what i'm laboring is use it as a jumping off point it's like a diving board <laughs> right to go and execute a beautiful dive into a pool and end up somewhere else mm -hmm. but yeah don't it's not science 
Uh, and you've worked, a, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And you've worked around quite a few alcohol brands and need states and research that does exactly what you just said with the archetypes. It will map a portfolio or an entire industry based on, well, in alcohol's case, the the need that someone has when they go for a particular type of beer or a particular mm-hmm. cocktail or liquor. Uh, do you have much faith in in those as a way to manage a portfolio? And also, could you give people an overview of what those need states are? Alcohol need states. God, I've forgotten them all. I haven't worked on booze in a little while. But like the, look, there are the class. Uh, what are they? There's refreshment. There's discernment. There's um, uh, uh, like mealtime coming together. Again, I can't remember all the alcohol need states off the top of my head. But uh, again, they are broad, just like archetypes. Need states are broad brush categorizations of customer needs, which again, they're really useful as a starting point. But again, when you get these ropey mappings of saying within the refreshment need states, only three archetypes work, you're like bullshit, right? And when you actually unpack the studies and the research that goes onto it, and this is a dirty little secret across the social sciences in general is, you know, nothing replicates. So the, the methodologies are usually pretty damn ropey. Um, that's where it gets problematic. But if you use need states, uh, let, let, let me give you an example of a need state where, where you use it really, really well. Um, so back to talking about Canadian club in Australia, the, bi- the biggest need state in a hot country is refreshment. Sounds obvious. It's like, duh, right? It's that first drink of the night. It's a refreshment need state. The drinks that perform there are always cold. They have bubbles. So they're things like beers, ciders, and uh, champagnes. And normally people will stick to whatever they have as their first drink for a few drinks. Now, the reason I'm, I'm laboring this point is you can size that profit pool and then you can look at your portfolio, particularly at the time if you were Jim Beam, and go, we don't really have anything that works well in that need state. So let's develop something for that need state that will work. And that's how they made a ready to drink with Canadian club that that got into that need state and into that profit pool. So it becomes a useful macro tool for developing a business strategy and associated brand strategy. But again, it's not hard and fast science, you know, but, but again, some research companies and some academics will sell it, sell it as though it is, but it's just not. And so 20 plus years doing strategy work, are there skills that you've added to yourself in the past three to five years? Yeah, a lot more business rigor. And that would probably be more than the last three to five years. That would probably be the last decade. Just fully understanding how complex, you know, business in late-stage capitalism really is. Returning certain growth rates for either your shareholders or a holding company, it's really, really challenging. And then trying to get as smart as I can about what we can influence either as an advertising agency or as a, or as a design firm or as a branding consultancy, how what we can influence can help them reach the business goal in a meaningful way. Um, I do think too many people in advertising and in, in marketing don't have a strong sense of how the client really makes money, how the production lines work, all those tiny little details that can be the difference between, you know, success, failure, all those cliches, but they're very, very true. So, Learning how to read a PL. I remember when I first started freelancing directly for Jim Beam or, or Beam Global in Australia, you know, um, Phil, this guy, Phil Baldock, sat me down and said, Do you really know how to read a PL? And I was like, No. Nah. He's like, For you to help be really useful to me, I need you to know how my PL works. 
right? And so he sent me off to a CFO to spend an afternoon with her being trained and taught about how the Jim Beam P&L works. So just that, you know, just get a little bit business smarter. It's not that hard. There are great YouTube talks about how to read the P&L now, you know? You can go and do that yourself. But ju- just that. Okay. Uh, I, I find that's an interesting thing that sometimes agency people berate themselves over or they kind of moralize that you, you've got to know the business inside out, so to speak. But I've, I've had marketing clients who've not known their own business. And Absolutely. also, also in, in America, you, they don't want you to know their business. They want you to communicate it and to stay away from everything else. And they might do you the honor of sharing some of the metrics with you at some point, but that's, you're not getting it all. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that's madness in my opinion. And that's where agencies, that's a um, master slave relationship with agency and client. Um, I know it's cheesy, but we always talk about like we can do the best work when we partner with you. Um, it so rarely happens these days. I've seen less and less and less of that. You're right. Agencies just get pushed further and further down the value chain. If they were hiring a McKinsey, I guarantee you they'd be sharing all that stuff with McKinsey because they feel they can. But again, design firms, advertising agencies have sort of lost credibility within a lot of clients. And they're like, oh, you're just the monkeys that make the ads and make the logos. So what do you need to know how my production line works for? Uh, But I don't agree with that way of thinking from clients at all. And in fact, the best work I've ever done for clients are clients who've worked directly with us, intimately with us, often in the same room for weeks at a time to solve big problems. Yeah. So I know what you're talking about, Mark, and it, but it's just batshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And I've enjoyed some of those informal relationships as well. Mm. Sometimes it's just about finding that those one or two people in a, in a client team mm. that you can get, get on with and make things happen. However, I've also noticed a lot of marketing departments are also quite submissive within their own organizations. If you look at some of the massive tech startups in the world, well, not startups, if, if you look at some of the massive tech companies in the world, marketing's not exactly a senior voice in those companies. No. Marketing, I, I can't remember the essay, but there was a fantastic essay by somebody, uh, which if you want the link, I'll find and send to you after the conversation, but about how marketing is not understood or properly valued in Silicon Valley. And they've done an analysis of how actually, you know, if you're a, a startup and you go to your VC and you say, I need $30 million for more coders or engineers, you'll get it. If you say, I need $30 million for marketing, they won't give it to you because they have this whole build it and they will come attitude. But this person had broken down of how many success, how many startups would have succeeded if they'd been marketing properly, but they either didn't make the distance or then their ideas were taken by somebody else who were better at marketing. So you're right that tech companies don't value marketing correctly. And look, even, even here, too many clients, I think, actually see uh, senior clients look at their marketing departments and think any monkey can do marketing. Uh, I, uh, and it's just not true. You look at the clients where the, the marketing provides a real return on investment and they know what they're doing. They've got respect internally. Um, I just think it's a naivety on the, side of the, of, on the side of the clients and an inability for marketing to demonstrate its value up the chain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, two last questions and they're going to be bedfellows. The first one is, as, as you were saying way earlier in this, what I think is not just hopeful but is factual, this return to simplicity, at least in, within the culture of the agency world and the marketing world, touch wood. What to you are the best things about this return to simplicity? Oh, the, for me personally, it's going to be the, the, the lack of jargon. I just felt like for a number of years, every year you'd walk into a meeting room and somebody would be saying some word 
that no one understood, everyone was nodding along with, and everyone had to pretend to understand and then try to figure out. And, it, and usually when you unpacked it, it was just a, a new word for an old concept or it was a, a word. I mean, I, I go crazy with the word platform. You know, that's a word taken from tech that gets applied to comms all the time. So instead of saying, what's our campaign idea? People go, what's our comms platform? And it, again, it was just this need to feel more important, almost this embarrassment, like, oh, we can't just be doing ads. Oh, that's a bit naff. We're a bit embarrassed by that. So we'll steal language from tech to make ourselves feel more important. So for me, the biggest refreshing thing is going to be, or has been, I hope it continues to be, English that everyone can understand, meetings that people can walk out of with everybody having had a common lexicon and, and having understood what, what, what the meeting was about. Mm. Yeah, that word platform does throw me a little bit. I started to use it a bit more in America, but it's, I don't know if it's just tech. I think it also comes from political platform, so that often when I've seen people do oh, yeah. reporting, reporting on politics or... Miss America and pageants like that, which I don't spend a lot of time watching. But I remember in my first year here, I was on a plane flying to Philadelphia from Chicago and this guy started to talk to me, which is one of the beautiful things about living in America that you're only ever one stranger away from a conversation. And he heard my accent and he asked me what my platform was. And I was like, what? what is that? And it's like, you know, what's your thing? What are you here for? And so I actually mm. don't, I think it might not just be about tech, but I, I hear you on that particular word. Uh, mm. And then, what, what do you think are the, the risks as we return to simplicity? What risks could we who love simplicity face? Johnny Ives from Apple, right, has a great thing, which is don't confuse simple with simplistic. Every now and again, simple strategy is actually too simplistic. It takes a lot of hard work to get to rigorous simple, right? You have to have actually gone through all your options, everything on the table and made sacrifices consciously to get to simple because then your chance of getting blindsided by something, your chances are fewer. So the danger is, is when we confuse simple for simplistic and go, Oh, it's super simple. We're just going to do this, that, and that. And, and Bob's your uncle. We're done. So I, I, I maintain that to get to simple actually takes more time than to get to complexity because um, you have to go through complexity to get to simple. So if we make the error of thinking simple just means fast, cheap, bish, bash, bosh, then it's going to be a disaster because we're going to have simplistic strategy, which isn't just going to stand, it won't stand the test of time. It'll get black swanned, it'll get side, you know, sidebarred or whatever you call it, sideswiped and, uh, and it'll be a disaster. So just, just appreciating the real rigor and the real depth of thinking and work that needs to be done to get to something simple. Look, Ritson wrote a thing about the uh, Australian Effies recently where he talks about that. He wrote a, a wash-up of it, which I think is on the Comms Council website, just talking about how all these incredibly effective strategies from a marketing and advertising perspective was so almost childishly simplistic at the simple, not simplistic, but childishly simple at the end, but just to appreciate how much hard work it takes to get there. Awesome. Tom, where can people find you on the internet? Oh, dude, mostly on Twitter. Um, I, uh, I'm at, at the punk rock shop on Twitter. Um, I've kind of gotten rid of all my other social media. I mean, Instagram's just for family now. Um, and uh, and uh, so that's where I'm at. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me on Sweathead today, talking oh, about brand strategy. It's great to chat with you, brother. Next time you're down here, uh, you've got to let me take you out for a drink. Totally, totally. Peace. Much love. See you, brother. Bye-bye.